Shana to all of you, and Dory joins me in wishing you all a happy, healthy, sweet, and meaningful new year. Quick question for all of you. What are you doing here? Seriously, why are you here? Why did you get dressed up? Why did you come to synagogue today? Why did you leave work? Why are you sitting here in the pews right now? If I were to jump into your heads and come up with some answers, this is what I think I would hear. I'm here for a sense of tradition. I'm here because my wife made me come. I'm here to see people and to catch up with them. I'm here because my days, my work gives me these days off only if I go to synagogue. I'm here because of my father and my mother, and I'm here because of the memory of my grandparents. I'm here because I'm afraid of dying, and coming here covers me from that. I'm here for a sense of community and peoplehood. And I'm here because I want to be a different and better person than I am today. All those answers are fine answers. They're great answers. They satisfy me. More importantly, they satisfy you. And that's great. And I imagine if I were to jump into your head and get the answers, that's what you would say. I know this because we do a survey every year after the holidays, and we ask why you're here. And these are some of the answers, a small sampling that you've given, and I have the blessing of getting to know many of you, and seeing your lives, and celebrating with you, and mourning with you. And you share these answers with me. And I'm touched by them. What's fascinating to me is not what's on the list. What's fascinating to me is what's not on the list. And that is God. How come so few of you, when I ask you that question, and so few of you, when you fill out your survey, and so few of you, when you think about it and talk to me, don't say that you're here because of God. You're here to talk to God, to pray to God, to get closer to God, to deepen your relationship with God. Do you even believe in God? Many of you have told me, in a host of settings, from Cafe Angelique to the privacy of my office, that you don't believe in God. And I think if more of us believed in God regularly, Maybe we wouldn't have to set up chairs only for the holidays. Okay. So some of you here don't believe in God, and some of you do. And I'm fine with that. Really, I am. That is between you and God, or you and your non-God. But what I'm concerned about is not your lack of faith. What I'm concerned about is that your lack of faith has trickled down to your children, to your society, community around you. It scares me. I have literally run out of fingers and toes to count the amount of people who have come and told me that their kids don't believe in God. Rabbi, tell them they have to believe in God. Sometimes your kids even have the courage to sit with me and to look me in the eye, and I respect them for this. And they tell me they don't believe in God. But for all those people who are not faithful, who don't believe, kids and adults, you're in very good company. Gallup did a survey this summer, and the poll came to the conclusion that atheism is on the rise. That almost 10% of the world has less belief in God, less belief in God than the very same poll that was conducted seven years ago in 2005. And the most frightening part of the statistic is as follows, and allow me to read directly from the study. It says, of the religion surveyed, Jews were found to be the least devout. Only 38% of them were devout of the Jewish population worldwide, and only 54% of them believe in God and see themselves as religious and lacking faith. 
Just to add a little color to these statistics, so you understand where it is, 97% of Buddhists believe in God, 83% of Protestants believe in God, 74% of Muslims believe in God. We're at 38%. 38%. So to sum up the facts, very simply, 10% of the world believes less in God today than it did seven years ago, and the greatest non-believers are us, the Jews. So if you don't have faith, if you struggle with your faith or with God, I think no less of you. And while this might even be heretical for some rabbis to say, I don't think you're a bad person, and I definitely don't think you're a bad Jew. Faith is something that is earned. It isn't inherited. But I do think that there is a correlation between a growing lack of faith amongst Jews and a sense of priorities and values that seem to be askew in our modern world. If we don't believe in God, why are we still here? Jews are people that seem to be living on some kind of religious inertia. I think there's a deep sense of irony in that. You see, originally, Abraham was the father of belief in one God for many people. But today, we are one people who have all different types of versions of what God looks like to us. Today, in place of the Shema and Torah, we have placed the Shilpahs, Hanukkah candles, Israel, and the calendar that seems to draw us together at certain times of the year. And I have a theory regarding these statistics and numbers that I shared. And like every rabbi in the world, my theory is based in a story. So I ask your indulgence for a moment. And I'm indebted to my friend and colleague, Rabbi Dana Sorokin, who pointed out this to me this summer, and her insight is much appreciated. We were on our way to lead the family trip to Israel, Dory and I, this summer, and our luggage broke. One of the wheels came off, and we needed this piece of luggage. So I called the luggage store, and I said, here's what we can do. Bring it into us. We'll ship it to get fixed. In the meantime, we'll give you a loner piece of luggage. Very nice. I had to go to their store. So I went to a place that a rabbi never goes to, the Garden State Plaza. And it was... And it's in between time. All the kids are home from camp, but college hasn't started yet, and school hasn't started yet. And where do kids go when they're off camp and there's no school? They go to the Garden State Plaza, apparently. And as I'm wheeling this broken piece of luggage through the halls of this enormous mall, I couldn't help but notice all of these kids, and they were all wearing t-shirts. Now, it's appropriate to wear a t-shirt because it was hot outside, but what was written on the t-shirt is what captured my attention. They were like bumper stickers, statements. And these were just a few of the ones that I saw. I'm sexy. Or it's all about me. Or I attend the University of Awesomeness. Adorable. Show me the Benjamin, referring to Benjamin Franklin, a $100 book. An epic. Or a play on the one got notes says, got money? And every focus walking down the hall had the words juicy written on them as I went through this mall. I don't think our future is based on t-shirts, but I do think it's emblematic of a climate that we're living in. It has its most focus much more on the I than on the we. You see, I think it's the juxtaposition of Sigmund Freud and Rabbi Nachman of Vaslov. According to Freud, he was driven by this notion of the id. It is the pleasure drive in each of us, something that is about us. But Rabbi Nachman of Rothschild said, we don't have an id, we have an ode. 
is the I lead to an Odi. Or in Hebrew, I and above dollars. Ode means more. That we have a drive to help the other. To do more than what is part of ourselves. The I, the id, stands for us. I, iPhone, iPad, iChat, everything about us. But the O is about the other. Freud versus Nachman of Rothschild. The id versus the Ode. Have you ever seen the show uh, Modern Family? It's one of my favorite shows out. It is brilliant writing. To me, it's genius. I love watching it, and I love, love the humor. And if you notice about the show, people who watch it, everyone has a favorite character. No one's favorite character is the same. Some love Sam, some love Manny, some love Gloria. My favorite character is Phil Dunphy. I love him. I think his innocence is the best. The particular episode where he comes downstairs, he's talking to his wife, Claire, at the beginning of the episode, and he says that he says, Claire, you remember last year we won two massages and a day at the spa when we attended the charity for the kid club dinner? Last May? Guess what? Those certificates expire today. Let's go get a massage. Let's go pamper ourselves today because if we don't, Claire, that means that our money was only a donation. I had to pause the DVR when I watched that one because I was laughing so hard. While it's hilarious, it's also really true. We have been the victims of our own success. Sometimes I notice we attend charity events more focused on what we can bring home instead of what the event is or how we can make an impact. Do you ever go to a golf outing not knowing what the organization that was that you're supporting but just so you could play a particular course? Do you ever have an email forwarded to you about an online auction that's being afforded for an organization you never heard of? Is that the definition of self-indulgence? Has it come to supplant an idea of selflessness? Our grandparents didn't win things at Federation dinners. My parents never came home from a JCC gala with a TV and JV tickets. And my grandparents, they never, they never wore T-shirts. But if they did wear T-shirts, what do you think it might have said on their church or on your grandparents' church? Probably would have said something like, Did you have a job? Did you bring home the bacon? Did you lock the door? Your country needs you. Uncle Sam wants you. Instead of got milk or got money, it would say got value, got purpose, you can make a minion. And somehow or another, when you walked in the malls in those days, no writing on any purposes. Freud versus Nachman of Braslav. A kid versus an oath. To put it in more contemporary terms, Tom Brokaw wrote about your grandparents and my grandparents when he called them the greatest generation that ever was. In 1984, he went to Normandy to do a piece on the 40th anniversary of D-Day. And there, amongst the enormous military cemeteries, he saw people in their 50s, 60s, and 70s that had come to pay tribute and memory. And there he interviewed them and talked to them. And he realized the sacrifice that they had made for their country and for the world. He realized what they had done to better others that they didn't even know. He came to the conclusion that this indeed was the greatest generation ever. Tom Brokaw was moved by their selflessness, by their determination, by their drive. They would give the causes that didn't even benefit them, but it benefited the greater whole. So Tom Brokaw isn't on NBC News anymore. 
He's been replaced by Brian Williams. And if Brian Williams is going to write a book about us, about our generation, what's he going to say? Based on the t-shirts we're wearing, I'm afraid to read that book. What generation do we want to be? Okay, confession time. I told you all the statistics before, but there's one important one that I left out. I left it out for a purpose, and I want to share it with you now. Some small caveats. So I told you 38% of Jews believe in God, and the rest don't. But there's something different. We did a similar study in February, in only Israel, by Haaretz newspaper, and asked all Jews, secular and observant, who believe in God. And the number was 80%. 80%. So why such huge disparity between the Jews of Israel and the Jews of the Diaspora? Between those that connect there and those that connect here? And what is belief in God after all? The dictionaries would claim it's a conviction, a compassion, or some belief in a supreme creator, or something bigger than we are. Is that what it is? Belief in something bigger than we are? Why does that cause Israelis to believe more than us? Well, again, I have a theory. And again, I have a story. It's about my friend, Tal Becker, who is the chief negotiator on behalf of the Israeli people with the Palestinians. He's my teacher at the Hartman Institute. And one day, his child care fell through, so he had to bring his five-year-old son, Akiva, to class. He was beautiful and adorable, and all of us commented on how sweet he was. Akiva then went outside and played with someone's computer or laptop so that he could entertain, and Tal took a moment and told us a beautiful story about Akiva, not from this past summer, but the summer before, when Gilad Shalit was still held in captivity. Akiva had been four years young, and he came into his father's office, and he said, Daddy, I have an idea. I want to take apple juice, and I want to pour it all over those who took Gilad Shalit away, because... It makes them sticky. If they're sticky, then they can't do anything, and we can go in and capture Gilad and take him home. And then he patted his son's head. He says, it's beautiful, but I don't know if it's going to work. And the Kiva said, well, you know what, Daddy? Let me go in his place, as long as I can bring my bear with me. Because Gilad's a soldier. Israel needs soldiers. But I'm just a boy. Let me go in his place. He gave him a kiss. He went off to play. Hal told us that he cried. He cried because the first time in his life he realized that the ethic that he had prayed for, the ethic of what Israel is, the ethic of selflessness, had already gotten to his four-year-old boy. That is Akhidat Yitzhak, the binding of Isaac that we read tomorrow. A sense of giving up something that is greater than you for a better cause. And I'll tell you, this summer, in a way like never before, it hit me like a beautiful tidal wave. And I realized that what attracts me so much to Israel is not kosher McDonald's on the corner, or not the fact that everyone marches to the same rhythms that we do there, but that everyone there believes in something bigger than themselves. That's inherent in being there. It's not a place of selfishness. It's a place of selflessness. They all subscribe to something bigger than themselves. They all have to, to survive. This notion that hit me and that hit Akiva is nothing new to Israel. Think back to someone like Eli Cohen. Eli Cohen was someone born in Egypt, 
1952, emigrated to Israel in the 50s. But he spoke fluent Arabic. The Mossad got a hold of him, and they wanted him to infiltrate Syria. They set up a guise and told him he's going to be an Argentinian businessman who's originally from Syria. He spent a year and a half in front of Aries, and then he moved to Syria, and he was able, through his perfect Arab dialect, to connect with some of the leadership of the army in Syria. He had lots of money. He was funded by the Mossad. And there, he told all of the generals, all of the parts of advice that he could share. So on the Golan Heights, as he stood, he sat up there and he said, look at all your soldiers in these bunkers protecting Syria. They're so hot. Why don't you put up some eucalyptus trees to give them some shade? That, that will look after your Syrian soldiers. So, the army said, you are a brilliant man. He did. Eucalyptus trees on every bunker throughout Syria. And then, I was telling them home, into his little apartment, in a very dangerous and selfless way, radioed back to the Israelis. Eucalyptus trees. In 1967, during the miraculous Six-Day War, the Israelis took Syria in a matter of hours, because they knew where every bunker was. They bombed the eucalyptus trees. Ali Cohen put his life on the line. He was captured and found out in 1965. He was tortured and hung in a public square in Damascus. But what was beautiful was his son Shai, who had his bar in Israel. And he read this speech that I'm going to read to you. At his bar mitzvah. Shai said, I wish I were like all other kids. I wish my father were a simple man instead of a state hero. And he'd be alive today. I'd have my father be with me on this day of my bar mitzvah instead of just remembering him. I've read everything about my dad. I've collected every article about what he did for our country. I have every remnant of his life. And I'm so hesitant to mention his name because it pains my mom so. But father, on this day in my life of my bar mitzvah, I make this vow to you. I will never fail you. I will do my duty with all my faith and devotion to support to support sustain the nation of Israel. I will be a faithful son of an admired hero. I will do everything I can to be like you. And that is my pledge. On this holy day of his bar mitzvah, at 13 years young, he doesn't ask for a fountain pen, he doesn't ask for an iPad or a party. He asks to have a sense of selflessness, just like his father. Ernie Cohen saw his role as bigger than himself, and so did his son, Shai. It didn't happen only in Israel. It happens in this country, too. How many people went off in 42 to 45 after Pearl Harbor to defend our land? Or the Korean War from 50 to 53, or Vietnam from 65 to 74? And even the wars that we have in the Mideast today. Remember Pat Tillman, the American football player who left his professional career and enlisted in the U.S. Army in 2002 after September 11th? He joined the Army Rangers and did several tours in Afghanistan. Tillman turned down a contract of $3.6 million from the Arizona Cardinals. Instead chose to defend his country because he was so pained by what he saw on September 11th. But Pat wasn't alone. He was joined by lots of other people, including his brother Kevin, who gave up a promising career with the Cleveland Indians, a career that was much more lucrative than being a defensive back for the Arizona Cardinals. He wanted to give something back to the country. He felt a sense, like Kelly Cohen, of something bigger than themselves. One of the 
biggest challenge I have as a rabbi is to share that sense with others. And always on our trip to Israel, there's this one unsuspecting place that seems to always do the trick. We normally go there the day of the bar about mitzvah ceremony on our family trip, and it's no coincidence. It's found in Rechazot, just outside of Tel Aviv, and it's called the Ayalon Institute. It's a little kibbutz on the hill. And at that kibbutz, it was a training ground where others would learn how to have kibbutz life. So those who emigrated to what was then Palestine would want to say, I want to live on this commune. How do I do my laundry? How do I serve food for 150 people? How do I grow oranges and pluck them from trees? So this was the training ground where you would go for three to five months, and then they would ship you off to found some kibbutz and start working there. But what few people knew was that that kibbutz, in an underground bunker underneath the laundry, was a bullet factory. And from 1945 to 1947, 64 people went in there. And they didn't even tell their spouses, their siblings, no one else that they had this role. And right underneath, the British knows they made millions upon millions of bullets because they knew that when they declared independence as a state, that they would have to have some way to defend themselves. And if they didn't defend themselves, then there'd be no declaration, there'd be no independence. They would be annihilated. These people took gunpowder and heat and with sound and beautifully came up with this idea of how in a bunker you could build these bullets and ship them out, hiding them as if it was makeup when they brought them out in cases and canisters. There's a quote there from David Pendurian. It says, I doubt there was any more heroic enterprise in the land or any other operation involving such constant mortal danger to conceal the secret work that occurred at the Ireland Institute. And I don't know what was greater, their modesty or their heroism. Parents and adults, they leave the Ireland Institute inspired and moved by people who put their lives on the line every day for a greater cause, the establishment of the state of Israel. Could you imagine doing something so scary, so serious each and every day for two years, and you couldn't tell your spouse, you couldn't tell your sibling, you couldn't tell the person in the tent next to you, and you were doing it because you believed in something greater than yourself? We've kind of people like that in our history. In the 60s, Michael Schwerner and Andrew Goodman, those Jewish boys who went down to Mississippi with James Cheney in the Freedom Summer of 64, even died for a greater cause. And the 60s and the 70s were loaded, loaded with us as a movement of people who use their feet and their voices to make a difference in the world. Have we used our voices and our feet and our hearts to shape something bigger than we are? And 25 years ago, we marched in the thousands for Soviet Jews to be released from the USSR. We asked President Reagan, when Mikhail Gorbachev was in town, to let Anatoly Shermansky and others, just like him, to be free so they can pray in their homeland. They can be who they want, where they want, when they want. And eventually, those doors opened. And you and I, we were a part of that. But what are we prepared to march for today? What is today bigger than we are? Sometimes it seems that our greatest form of expression, of protest, is when we see something absolutely deplorable, or we see something disgraceful, we rise up and protest by asking all the people we know to hit like on our Facebook page, if you're equally outraged. Or perhaps we're told to click to attend a virtual rally, where we don't have to go anywhere. 
just show our connection to a particular cause. Is there anything in that behavior that subscribes to the notion of something bigger than we are? As convenient supplanted purpose, we at our synagogue have been very blessed to bring meaningful delegations to both APAC and Israel. And I would tell you that those delegations share something in common. Not only the love of the land, but what they share in common is that people participate individually in something that is communal, and that most people who attend are inspired, changed, and they come back different. The different congregants, the different spouses, the different members of our community, the different parents, and they have a different role in our school. They have a much sharper understanding of purpose. And those of you that have participated on any of those pilgrimages can testify to the same. And if your kid came home today, and your kid said, I want to defend Israel in the army, or I want to enlist in the U.S. Army to get something back to our country, would you celebrate, or would you lament? If your child packed her bags and went off to Rwanda or Bosnia to volunteer for the Peace Corps, would you take pride, or would you try and change their mind? Or what if your kid dropped out for a semester just so that he or she could sit on the grand jury? Would that be something that would allow you to bulge with pride, or would you be grieving an opportunity lost? When did our feet lose their drive to march? When did our voices become a whisper for advocacy? When did this all happen? I posit that whether you believe in God or not, the core of our religion is being part of something that is bigger than we are. And I suggest that there is a direct correlation between a sense of something bigger than we are and faith and connectivity to God as a whole. It is no coincidence that atheism is on the rise and communal connection is on the decline. These two things are intrinsically connected. We've lost our connectivity with God because we've lost our ability to connect with anything bigger than ourselves. Did we run for jury duty or did we look for an excuse? Did we give up a night to sleep in a homeless shelter? Or did we take care of other responsibilities instead? Did we volunteer for our country, our school, our synagogue, or our JCC? Or were we too busy with our homes, our travel, or buying t-shirts? Isn't this the story of Abraham and the mere sacrifice of Isaac? Believing in something bigger than ourselves? Isn't this the story of the four-year-old Akiva and the apple juice? Isn't this the story of Cheney, Schwerner, and Goodman? The story of the Tillman brothers? The story of Ellie Cohen and the eucalyptus trees? The story of the JCC dinners of old? The story of the 64 people at the ILM Institute? Isn't this the story of every man and woman that serves in the IDF? Shouldn't this be our story too? Because while I'm not sure what God wants, I know that it's good to be worried with more than myself. This is a time of year to glean from our ancestors, from our brothers and our sisters in our homeland. We need to strive to be like Abraham and smash our American idols and start believing in something bigger than ourselves, something that will make our mark in the world, something that will leave our kids a greater inheritance. Our success and confidence need not be worn on our sleeves or printed on our torso. 
But the success is our true marker, and that is in our selflessness. So is it Freud, or is it Nachman of Rothschild? Did or the own? Ourselves or the other? All of you have three simple things you can do to start making this difference. If you want, subscribe to it. Start now, continue over the next 10 days, and continue for the next year. First, notice how many times you start a sentence with the word I instead of we. And how many times the words that follow I are want, need, or must have. Take stock of them. Count them. Cut them down. Start using the words we in its place. Next, I want you to pick a project it doesn't involve writing a check, but does involve giving your time to be part of something bigger than you are. A homeless shelter, a soup kitchen, deliver food to the sick, or the elderly, or the homebound. And don't take your kids. Do it yourself. Because so many times you take your kids and it's tantamount to taking your kids apple picking. You're not going apple picking. You might pick an apple or two, but you're taking them apple picking. And the problem is, your kids know that you're taking them apple picking. And when you take your kids to deliver food, it's lovely and it's meaningful, but you're not doing it. You're really watching them do it. I want you to do this act. Do it from your heart and soul. And when you pick up your kids from school or you're writing them in an email, tell them what you did. Because that will be more potent and more valuable than dragging them along with you and trying to model for them as they do it in front of you. I promise you, your kids will emulate you in all that you do. They will emulate what you wear and what you say, and they'll emulate the t-shirts you wear. So do these acts for you, and let your kids follow the model that you have set. Let that inspire others. And then trust me, make those selfless acts part of your next 10 days and 350 days, and see how it changes you and the world. A quick closing thought. In 1977, an Israeli cargo ship was in the Far East and came upon a Vietnamese boat that was quickly sinking and out of rations. Six other boats waving flags of all other countries passed it by. Panamanian, Japanese, East German, Norwegian, just to name a few. All were by the boat. But Israeli cargo shop stopped and took on the 63 Vietnamese people who were on board. They gave them food. They brought them back from Vietnam to Israel. When Menachem Begin, in one of the very first acts of his prime ministership, granted them asylum and later citizenship. This is what he did. He brought them in. And a few years later, at Camp David, President Carter was saying beautiful things about Menachem Begin, and he said, what a beautiful act of sensitivity and thoughtfulness for these people who were destitute. And Begin retorted, but how what mattered to the Jewish history was not why the Jews had suffered, but how the Jews needed to act. Not why we had suffered, but how we needed to act. Not why, but how. Not an id, but an oath. Ladies and gentlemen, a government that is selfless will have citizens that are selfless. Parents that are selfless will have children that are selfless and countries and their inhabitants. Parents and their children can all realize 
There is something bigger than themselves. Something that brings them to the temple and directs their actions day in and day out. And maybe that's something to try.